Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hello again, everyone. In the last two episodes, we took a broader look at Mormon's books and the Book of Mosiah. Now it's time to dive right into the Book of Mosiah with Mosiah chapter 1. And we're going to start by looking at verses 1 through 8. In verse 1 we read, And now there was no more contention in all the land of Zarahemla, among all the people who belonged to King Benjamin, so that King Benjamin had continual peace all the remainder of his days. That's kind of an abrupt beginning to the book. It sounds like we're picking up late in the game. It turns out that we are. Evidence from the early Book of Mormon manuscripts suggest we were actually missing chapters 1 and 2 of the Book of Mosiah. Apparently, they were lost by Martin Harris in what we've come to know as the lost 116 pages. Even though we don't have Mormon's original introduction to this book, we still get some orienting information here at the beginning of Mosiah chapter 1. Benjamin initially had some problems during his reign as king. We know from the book of Omni and the words of Mormon that that included a massive war with the invading Lamanites, as well as internal dissenters among the Nephites. We also know that Nephites are only a generation into sharing a kingdom with the Mulekites, which likely contributed to some of the problems. But by all accounts, Benjamin was a great king. And through his effective leadership, he's brought about a period of sustained peace and security. It's during this season of peace that a group of Nephites leaves Zarahemla to try and reclaim the land of Nephi from the Lamanites. We'll get to that story later. Anyways, we also learn from verse 2 that Benjamin has three sons. Mosiah, named after Benjamin's father, Helaram, and Helaman. We only really get to know his first son, his heir, Mosiah. But I've always wondered about Alma the Younger's relationship with Helaman, Benjamin's third son. Alma names his oldest son Helaman, and I wonder if Mosiah's younger brother Helaman becomes a friend or mentor to Alma. We know that Alma is close to the sons of Mosiah early on, and that Alma the Elder and Mosiah work closely together. It seems plausible that Helaman and Alma would have known each other. Perhaps Alma marries Helaman's daughter. Or maybe Helaman is just a common Nephite name. We don't know, but I find that a little humble speculation can be a reminder that these people had lives, relationships, and families outside of the surviving record. In verses 3 through 8, Benjamin begins to teach his sons about the records that have been passed down to him. The last author in the book of Omni, Amalekai, tells us that since he has no seed and since his brother was with the group that went back to the land of Nephi, that he passes the scriptures to King Benjamin. So Benjamin apparently has the records kept by the kings, which must have been taken by the first Mosiah on their exodus from the land of Nephi, and the more sacred records that Jacob passed down through his descendants. Speaking of the Nephite relics, Benjamin has also inherited the sword of Laban, which some evidence suggests may have gone all the way back to Joseph of Egypt. The brass plates, the Liahona, and the Jaredite interpreters that we call the Urim and Thummim. Benjamin begins by explaining the importance of the brass plates, saying, 
My sons, I would that ye should remember that were it not for these things, which contain these records and these commandments, we must have suffered in ignorance, even at this present time, not knowing the mysteries of God. For it were not possible that our father Lehi could have remembered these things, to have taught them to his children, except it were for the help of these plates. For he, having been taught in the language of the Egyptians, therefore he could read these engravings and teach them to his children, that thereby they could teach them to their children, and so fulfilling the commandments of God, even down to this present time. Here we learn a little bit about why the scriptures are important. Notice what Benjamin is concerned about. He's concerned with the preservation of their identity, their language, and the commandments of God. 400 years separate Lehi and Benjamin, but the scriptures have been this bridge between their two worlds. That strikes me as incredibly important. When we read the scriptures, do we think about how they connect us to our past? What about the ordinances of the gospel, some of which are intended to turn our hearts toward our fathers and mothers from past generations? Some of my most meaningful moments in the temple have been when I remember that my ancestors spoke similar words or wore similar clothing and so forth. Notice that the brass plates are written in some form of Egyptian, what Nephi calls the learning of the Jews in the language of the Egyptians. Historian Don Bradley believes that this might be another connection to Joseph of Egypt. These plates came to Laban down from his ancestors. Laban, like Lehi, was a descendant of Joseph. So the plates of brass are a Josephite record, and like the sword, could have been a Josephite relic. Benjamin has real-time examples of what would have happened if they didn't have the brass plates. He points to the Lamanites as an example, but he could have just as easily pointed to the Mulekites, who had forgotten their language and their religion in the centuries since they had fled Jerusalem. Benjamin wraps up this section by emphasizing the importance of the records, both the brass plates and the plates of Nephi. He says, They are true, and we can know of their surety because we have them before our eyes. To us living in this information age, Having words in front of our eyes doesn't carry the same weight as it did for Benjamin. Anybody can publish anything online. We have to remember that the past is a foreign country. The Nephites meticulously documented the authorship of the plates of Nephi. Even when the authors self-identified as wicked men, the existence of the record was sufficient evidence of its veracity. Again, we live in a different world than they do. But perhaps there is something that we need to reconsider here. Let's take the Book of Mormon for example. I've been in a graduate seminar at a secular university where we were discussing the history of the Book of Mormon. One of the points that gave everyone, no matter their faith orientation, pause in that seminar was the fact that the Book of Mormon exists. It's hard to give a clear explanation for it. We take it for granted, but if you're familiar with the Book of Mormon, you can pretty quickly gauge someone else's familiarity with that book. Because it's not about Joseph Smith, and it's not about the pioneers. It has its own story, its own cultures, its own history, and it takes a long time to read. Elder Gene R. Cook tells a story of a flight that he was on coming back from Mexico. And by simple coincidence, he happened to sit next to Mick Jagger, lead singer for the Rolling Stones. Elder Cook introduced himself to Jagger as a member of the church. Jagger said that he had actually met with the missionaries two or three times. And after some conversation and some drinks, Jagger eventually became critical of the Book of Mormon, 
calling it a lie and anyone who believes in it a liar. Other Cook, I think sensing that Jagger really had no familiarity with the Book of Mormon, challenged him to find something objectionable in the book. After some time, Jagger responded, It's the part about Brigham Young. Now we're all rolling our eyes at Jagger because we know, like Elder Cook knew, that the name Brigham Young doesn't show up anywhere in the Book of Mormon. At the risk of belaboring this point, scholar Grant Hardy makes a similar observation about the Book of Mormon that I'm trying to make here. In his fantastic book, Understanding the Book of Mormon, he writes, If the primary purpose of the Book of Mormon were to function as a sign, as tangible evidence that Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God, that mission could have been accomplished much more concisely. A 50-page book delivered by an angel is no less miraculous than a thick volume. Perhaps we take the Book of Mormon for granted. Perhaps its existence in all of its detail, intricate theology, repetitious style, long quotations, and boring history that people skip over is evidence of its truth. At the very least, it's evidence that it cannot so easily be dismissed. Finally, this section wraps up with Benjamin giving what might be more familiar advice to his sons regarding scripture. I would, he says, that ye should remember to search them diligently, that ye may profit thereby. And I would that ye should keep the commandments, that ye may prosper in the land according to the promises which the Lord made unto our fathers. That seems like something you could hear from prophets or parents today. Benjamin has gone from talking about the role of Scripture in connecting the people to the past, to the role of Scripture for his sons personally, and is leaving it up to his sons to have the experience of searching for themselves. He also returns to the beginning here by reminding them of the covenant and promise that we learned about in the first pages of the Book of Mormon. With 400 years of Nephite Scripture and Revelation to draw from, Benjamin directs his sons to the original covenant. There's a reason I think we rehearse the story of creation and Adam and Eve, or Abraham's story, or the Easter story, or the first vision. The Japanese swordmaster Miyamoto Musashi once said, If you know the way broadly, you will see it in everything. In these foundational stories, as with that original Lehite covenant, we come to know the way broadly, and then we can take that knowledge and apply it to our individual circumstances. Let's turn to the final section of this chapter, verses 9 through 18. Benjamin confers the kingdom on his son, Mosiah, but he wants to do this publicly. So he commands Mosiah to gather the people. But this isn't just a coronation for Mosiah, it's a coronation for the people as a whole. Benjamin wants to give his people a new name, and it will be the name of Christ. Here's a good point to slow down and recall some things that we've talked about in past episodes. Remember that the name Mosiah actually means Messiah. This is how historian Don Bradley explains the connection. The name Mosiah was seen by Joseph Smith as similar to Messiah, to the point that he pronounced and spelled them identically. Mosiah's son, Benjamin, used that similarity at his own Mosiah's anointing as king to teach his people. It is here that Benjamin, son and father of Mosiah's, urged the Nephites, the people of Mosiah, to take on a name that is Messiah in translation, Christ. I hope you followed that. Basically, as Benjamin is anointing his son king, 
whose name literally means the anointed, he's going to give his people a name that also means the anointed. What kind of people get anointed? Kings and queens, priests and priestesses. Benjamin wants to coronate a kingdom of kings and queens. He wants to consecrate a priesthood of priests and priestesses. It's a powerful thing to take upon you the name of Christ, to covenant to be a Messiah person, one anointed by the anointed one. It means that you are bought in, that you are willing to take responsibility for bringing about a world, not created in our own image, but in his. Benjamin's speech is all about what it takes to create that world, what it takes to be a community of anointed ones. So let's remember that as we go in and read it. Benjamin ends this chapter by warning his son what will happen to the people if, having taken upon themselves the name and covenant of Christ, they become a wicked and adulterous people. Basically, they'll be destroyed by the Lamanites. He then passes the sacred relics, the brass plates, the plates of Nephi, Laban's sword, the Liahona, and we can assume the Jaredite interpreters, on to his son Mosiah, in effect transferring the stewardship of the people to his son. The Liahona, which some evidence suggests stopped working when the Nephite interpreters were found, serves as a reminder to Mosiah that giving heed and diligence to the Lord guides the people to the promised land, and being unfaithful brings chaos. The chapter then ends with Mosiah going and doing what his father has commanded, and calling the people to gather at the temple. Next episode, we'll start in on King Benjamin's speech. I've said before that I think it could be one of the best things ever written. I love it. We'll also start to slow down a bit. We've caught up with the Come Follow Me schedule for this year, so we'll keep on schedule moving forward. This week will be Mosiah 1-3, through 3, next week 4-6, through 6, and so on. So we'll be with Benjamin for the next two weeks. Again, I hope we go into Benjamin's speech asking ourselves what effect taking upon ourselves the name of Christ should have on the relationships we cultivate in the world we create. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at soundcloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Mm-hmm.